National Archives podcast series, Digging for Diamonds, Hidden Histories at the National Archives, presented by Jenny Orm. This event was recorded live on the 19th of April, 2012, at the National Archives, Kew. Okay, first things first today, I'd like you to close your eyes and imagine. You've just jumped out of a plane, but don't panic. You're wearing a parachute, and thankfully, it's opened. You're free to look around you and take in the view as you float slowly towards the ground. From up here, you can get a fantastic view of the world, of towns and villages as a whole, of patchwork fields and clear-cut coastline. It's easy to see where the borders of sprawling cities are and where trains and motorways crisscross the landscape. It's clear and it's beautiful. Now, come down to earth with a bump. You've landed in the depths of a forest. The treetops are so thick above you, it's dingy and dark down by their roots. All around you are twisted brambles and bracken. It's not very nice, and some of the things you find aren't very nice. But if you're prepared to dig deeper, somewhere buried below this dark world is something worth a fortune. And now back in the talks room at the National Archives. Welcome back. Um, and how is this relevant to hidden histories? Well, when I talk about parachuting, I'm referring to the overarching view of the records here at TNA. The popular, well-known areas, easy to find and easy to fit into the historical narrative. When I talk about truffle hunting, I am talking about the type of work needed to dig up those histories that are less well-known. As I will explain as I go along, in searching for hidden histories, you often have to look in very negative, ugly places within the records, employing negative language, as you can see, and generally putting in some hard work into identifying what you're looking at. However, by persevering, we can dig out these treasures and display them for what they're worth, much like truffles or diamonds. So what are hidden histories? And as record specialists of diverse histories here at TNA, I often get asked this question. I use the term hidden or silent histories as a more definable way of understanding what is meant by diverse. In a government archive such as this, it's actually probably easier to define these than in other places. Hidden histories are the non-mainstream histories, those that, particularly in a system like this that has traditionally been run by white middle-class men, need a helping hand to be heard. In TNA, they're the histories of groups such as ethnic minorities, people with disabilities, women, activist groups, anyone that has perhaps at some point not been considered the impo as important as the mainstream view. Although we are a government archive, our collection represents a diverse society. This is often overlooked and, and in what people expect to find here and how relevant it is to them. From a parachute, these individuals and groups can't be seen. They are part of the bigger picture, but with some thought and work, these valuable truffles can be dug up and their riches displayed. During this talk today, I'm going to suggest some simple tools that can help at the beginning of this type of research. Diverse histories are fascinating because they can cut across every discipline, from soldiers who are dismissed for homosexuality to the Indian immigrant left alone in the early 19th century in rural Somerset without any knowledge of English because her husband has died. 
the possibilities are endless. So for the purpose of this talk, I've had to limit myself, and I'm just looking at three key areas. They are sexuality, slavery, and disability. The nature of these subjects is that to delve deeper really into them, an understanding of the registry systems in government and pushing beyond the online catalogues will, will eventually be required. But today I'm just going to focus on some examples to illustrate how to begin research in these areas using largely online sources. So, beginning with the history of sexuality, for which I'm going to use the example of LGB history, which is lesbian, gay and bisexual history, where those who were once labelled criminals have personal stories to tell. As I've said, LGB stands for lesbian, gay and bisexual, and it's an excellent example of the plight of hidden histories within our and other archival collections. LGB history is changing rapidly, and new thoughts and ideas are coming to the fore all the time. In light of this, I'm not attempting to cover the field of LGBTQI history. Um, instead, we'll just follow, uh, focus on LGB. So LGBTQI is lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, questioning, and intersex. This is largely to do with what's known about LGB history here in the archives at the moment. It's much richer at this stage, whereas the rest we hope will follow later. I must also take the opportunity to say that terminology within this subject and others that I'm speaking about today is evolving. So if I use any terminology that anyone finds offensive or outdated, it's certainly not my intention. <coughs> LGB is a relatively new field of study within history and social sciences. It's largely due to the nature of the subject itself. Historical controversy surrounding the subject matter has meant that its study was also controversial, if seen as a subject matter at all. It's fair to say that over the past 40 or 50 years in particular, as the cause of gay rights has become more part of the social consciousness, so the study of LGB history has become more popular. It's an exciting subject to look at because it's one that's constantly evolving and new diamonds are being dug up in places such as TNA every day. As the archive of national government, the existence of LGB history is, as with any other subject, largely determined by the attitude and involvement of the government at the time. A good example of this recently has been the discussions in the news about gay marriage and the government's involvement in that. So in order to understand the challenges surrounding the unearthing of LGB diamonds within our records, it's essential that we have some knowledge of the subject and its position within the government. Prior to the 1960s, homosexuality was at different times treated as a sickness, a crime, but always a danger to the morality of society. It was first made a criminal offence in 1533 with the passing of the Buggery Act during the reign of Henry VIII. The idea of a gay community as we know it today did not exist in the public sphere. For most homosexual, bisexual or bicurious people, such experiences or relationships remain something that had to be conducted in complete secrecy, away from the judgment of society, and at least for men, from the law, for the fear of being shamed, outcast or charged. It wasn't until the publication of the Wolfenden Report in 1957 that things began to change significantly. The report recommended that society and the law should respect individual freedom of actions in matters of private morality. 
Although it stressed it was neither condoning nor condemning homosexual acts, it did recommend that two consenting adults over the age of 21 should not be prosecuted for them. This marked a political turning point, although it was another 10 years before the Sexual Offences Act was passed in 1967, which decriminalised homosexuality between two men in England and Wales. It wasn't until 1980 that this became the case in Scotland. So in terms of records, it's the very fact that male homosexuality was a crime up until the 1960s that means that within a government archive such as this, we have a significant amount of records that relate to it. We hold details of prosecutions which, although a very negative part of LGB history, can also be seen as a record of people living their lives, resisting oppression, and ultimately fighting a cause that informs us of what people have been through to get where we are today. One of the most famous examples of this in the records is the case of Oscar Wilde. A famous figure, there's naturally more interest and publicity surrounding his case than others, but it's a good example of the history of homosexuality in terms of the places it can be found within TNA. Wilde was tried and convicted of gross indecency in 1895. As the trial was held in the Central Criminal Court, we hold details of the evidence used in the trial, such as the visiting card of the Marquess of Queensbury accusing the playwright of being opposing sodomite in crim files following an affair with his son. You can see that in the top left of the, uh, of the screen there. There's a large amount of information relating to Wilde's time in jail in PECON files. And within these documents, as well as official proceedings, there's also a wealth of material providing information on the personal Wilde, including a letter from his wife Constance, in the bottom left there, requesting to see him, and a list of books that he requested while he was in jail, on the right-hand side here. Perhaps the most unique to this case are the nature of his handwritten petitions, written as only a literary scholar could. In this one, Wilde begs not to be sent to an asylum and to be treated in prison, admitting that he has a problem, anything to avoid what he sees as a place of no return. So speaking in the third person, he writes, he still clings to the hope that he will not have to pass from the common gal to the common lunatic asylum. Dreadful as are the results of the prison system, a system so terrible that it hardens the hearts whose hearts it does not break, and brutalises those who have to carry it out, no less than those who have to submit to it. Yet at least amongst, it, amongst its aims, it's not the desire to wreck the human reason. Though it may not seek to make men better, yet it does not desire to drive them mad, and so, Earnestly does this petitioner beg that he may be allowed to go forth while he still has some sanity left, while words still have a meaning and books a message. In Home Office files, we also have a glimpse of public opinions preserved in comments on the Wild case. In HO 4524513, we find three inserts, which are letters from members of the public commenting on the case. One from a man on the left-hand side here, describing how the loathsome scoundrel Wilde must not escape justice. The other, a plea from a woman in Wilde's support and claiming that many more feel the same as her but are too scared of being tainted with the same brush to speak out. There's an interesting point to be made with this second letter as well, through the comments made by Home Office officials on the file. A reasoned, well-written letter from a clearly educated woman is dismissed with the comment, 
this lady seems to be eccentric. As those who have looked at Home Office files before will know, the throwaway comments of officials cannot always be taken too seriously. However, it's an interesting thought that a suggestion of support for Wilde from a respectable strata of society, and perhaps particularly because it's voiced by a woman, is dismissed outright. In itself, the letter is another example of a historical diamond captured within the government archives. A chance encounter from a woman standing up for something that she believes in has been preserved. The preservation of material such as this has assisted in making Wilde an icon within LGB history, documenting the struggles he went through, and his case records are a good example of how a truffle hunt has been made easier through our catalogue, looking in the dark places of criminal and prison commission files, but being able to use a keyword search of his name and releasing the personal story of Wilde's experience of society's view of him. If you're interested in learning more about Wilde and the documents that we hold, because there's plenty more, there's an excellent podcast on our website which takes you through the history and the case files in much more detail, which I'd really recommend. Now, in the case of Oscar Wilde, I've obviously chosen an example that is well-known, well-researched, and thanks to this, is a lot more accessible within the archives. So how then do we use this idea of truffle hunting to find more gay history within our collections and collections like ours? As I've mentioned previously, the key to this is to gain an understanding of the history of the subject itself, to help us understand where we are likely to find these records. Here at TNA, we've produced a research guide with the help of some academics and those who have carried out research firsthand into LGB records. And what this crucially provides is a glossary of search terms that are really the key tools we need to begin this type of research and begin digging. It's important to, the, to remember that it was a criminal offence to partake in homosexual activity, and therefore the case files reflect this. If you search under gay or homosexual in the records, you'll generally return files from much later in the 20th century. If, however, you use phrases such as indecent behaviour, immoral act, importuning or sodomy, results are picked up in a wider time period and, as with Wilde's files, demonstrate the range of departments that hold relevant material. Well, I'm just going to use our new discovery to just give you an example of this. I've done two searches on the side. The first one is homosexual, homosexual is all I've used. And you can see, if I can <coughs> scroll down, on the left-hand side there, you can see the breakdown of the files that have been found and the dates that they respond to. So you can see the large majority, 124, fall in post-1950. If I go back and do the same search using just the word sodomy, then less files are found, but you'll see that the breakdown in the dates is very different, and you get the majority of files falling between 1700 and 1900. So I'd always recommend thinking a little bit outside the box when you're talking about diverse histories, and especially when using online resources. Unfortunately, we have to be prepared to use language that we would not dream of using nowadays. However, as archivists, it's not our job to pass comment on how things were described in the past. 
It's our job to make the material that teaches us about these histories as accessible as possible in its most true form for others to analyse and draw conclusions. After all, who is to say that words we use today will not be found offensive by generations in the future? This discussion of language brings me on to my final point in terms of LGB history. As we move forward, as I've suggested, we look to make historical material more accessible. In our new discovery catalogue, work has been done to tag records as much as possible within categories such as sex and gender. There are obviously some files, such as the Oscar Wilde files or the Wolfenden Report, that in terms of homosexual history can be quite easily identified as be being within the sex and gender category. However, there are many discoveries that can't be so easily cate categorised. Now, the criminal records we hold on male homosexuality, as I've referred to, are by no means the only ones. There are examples in many other parts of the archives, such as concerns raised in education reports about the activities of boys in boarding schools, or instructions to inspectors on interpreting the 1988 Local Government Act on curbing <coughs> intentional promotion of homosexuality in schools. However, they're often much more difficult to identify. For example, homosexuality between two women has never been a crime. And for this reason, the history of lesbian relationships and women having sex with women is much earlier in its infancy due to the difficulties of identifying material. There was a point in the 20th century when Parliament debated the introduction of a bill to criminalise sexual acts between two women to bring it in line with men. However, it was quickly dismissed by the Earl of Malmesbury as a most disgusting and polluting subject. And he reasons as follows. In passing a clause of this sort, you're going to do a great deal more harm than good. It requires some moral courage to discuss a subject of this sort. That the domestic habits of men and women are entirely different. Women are by nature much more gregarious. For instance, if 20 women were going to live in a house with 20 bedrooms, I do not believe that all the 20 bedrooms would be occupied either for reasons of fear or nervousness, and the desire for mutual protection. On the other hand, I know that when men take shooting boxes, the first inquiry is that each shall have a room to himself, if possible, and a comfortable room too. Now, the Earl of Malmesbury has hit the nail on the head here, although I'm sure he would be horrified to know it. He suggests that it would be perfectly acceptable for women to share a bed and nothing more be thought of it. And that is where the problem lies. Evidence of lesbian or other gay relationships may be there, but may never be confirmed for sure. For example, elaborate early modern letters between women can contain outpourings of affection, which could just as easily be read as letters between lovers, but haven't. And we will never know for certain whether what we are seeing is a close friendship or a lesbian relationship of any kind. Now, just as we're actively searching for this material, however, we must be very careful about what we then suggest. Obviously, not every close friendship is a sexual one. And at the same time, not every act of sex is a relationship. Going back to male homosexuality, another excellent example of this has been suggested by two of my colleagues, Paul Carter and Sarah Hutton. In a workhouse, we find a case of two men sharing a bed. We could tag this as an example of homosexuality in the records, but it's only described in the records as being highly objectionable by the union board and nothing more. So we're not sure if we're looking at something homosexual or whether they've just run out of beds. 
So you can see the problem we face in this regard. We want to make LGB history as accessible and findable as possible, <coughs> but at the same time, we don't want to risk distorting history and labelling things that aren't actually there. This is a fascinating ongoing debate between historians and archivists, and as we move forward and can actively influence the material being preserved and how it is catalogued, many local archives, such as the London Metropolitan Archives, are collecting material relating directly to LGBTQI to ensure that history doesn't repeat itself in this sense. Here at TNA, we're lucky enough to benefit from a group of interested researchers who have been coming in over the past few years to delve into the records in more detail. They've searched through many files establishing the presence or not of LGBT history. A few of them in the audience today. Currently, their work can be found listed in the archived version of your archives. And there is also some excellent podcasts on our website by Dr. Louise Chambers exploring particular elements in more detail with particular reference to censorship, lesbianism and transgender history that I'd again really recommend if you're interested in, in exploring the subject further. Leaving LGB history then for a while, I'll move on to my second subject choice, and that is slavery, which we've also produced a research guide on. Looking at individuals in the transatlantic slave trade where human cargo, personal rebellions, and haunting songs are just some of the diamonds that are being uncovered. A world of difference from LGB history in terms of the amount of research that has been carried out in this area and the amount that is known about it, that the transatlantic sla tra slave trade is really a mainstream element of history. However, it's the individual stories that once again are hidden within this. The parachute view shows us the history of the trade, the triangular route from the UK to Africa, Africa to the Caribbean, and the Caribbean back to the UK. But only in rare cases, such as Equiano or Ignatius Sancho, do we gain some first-hand understanding of those who were enslaved. Now, I thought carefully about including the transatlantic trade in my talk today. As far as black history goes, this is obviously an area well documented and something that is often cited as an example of African and Caribbean history. It is, however, quite obviously another very negative history, one that tells a story of those enslaved in horrific circumstances and the legacies that have come from that. As with LGB history, the records are largely official and therefore often focus on what the government was interested in at the time, namely trade and commerce. By looking in more detail at some of the records held here at the National Archives, there is a way of giving some, if only a very small amount, of the human stories back, of individuals that, that had their identities stripped away and in turn replaced by numbers and quantities. Through work like this, we can hope to learn from the past and remember those involved. And I've selected just a few examples that illustrate this. <coughs> To start with, the petition of Thomas Peters, one of the well-known founders of Sierra Leone's Freetown. Peters was transported along with thousands of other black refugees who had been freed from slavery from the United States to Nova Scotia in 1783 following the War of Independence. 3,000 of those transported were recorded in the Book of Negroes by the British and American authorities before being taken by ship from New York to Nova Scotia or New Brunswick. Now, using a brilliant website, which is hosted by the uh, University of Virginia, 
this book has been transcribed, making it name searchable. And using this, we can identify Thomas Potters, who is widely held to be Thomas Peters, described as 45 years old and an ordinary fellow. CO217 is a series of correspondence with the governor of Nova Scotia and London. In around 1790, a petition is forwarded by the Secretary of State from Thomas Peters, who describes himself as a free Negro and later sergeant of the Regiment of Guides and Pioneers. That's on the left-hand side there. He is complaining that settlers in Nova Scotia, such as himself, have not received the land grants they were promised. The governor of Nova Scotia, in contrast, responds that these people were put on lands and in a situation then much envied. It's noted in the Secretary of State's initial letter and the governor's response that there is interest amongst the settlers in Nova Scotia in a proposal to take those who are willing to a new, another new settlement in Sierra Leone. And this becomes the foundation of the capital of Sierra Leone, Freetown, which Peters ended up leading. He then reappears in the records after this resettlement has occurred um, in correspondence with the governor of Sierra Leone on the right-hand side here, where he writes to the Secretary of State with a very different view. We are entirely satisfied with the place and climate and hope that our fellow sufferers, whose circumstances did not permit them to accompany us, may soon enjoy the same blessing. The voice of Thomas Peters in the records is clear although unfortunately the material relating to him has not been catalogued in enough detail to allow us to find him through the keyword searches that we could with Oscar Wilde. So registry systems in this case must be used. Again, it's down to an understanding of the history of records to know where to begin to look. Colonial correspondence is really rich in its preservation of history such as this, but there are so many thousands of volumes, at the moment it's a long route for any researcher to take. As soon as you can narrow searches to events such as the emigration from Nova Scotia or the settlement of Freetown, so you can delve into the relevant registers and correspondence from the colony and find those diamonds that are hidden in there. An excellent book to get you started is this book by Mandy Banton, Administering the Empire, which we have behind the desk in the blue zone and also on the open library shelves, so I'd recommend that as well. Now, moving back into the time of the slave trade itself, in terms of research into the records here at TNA, there are some major series absolutely full of information where, on first glance, you might not expect to find it. For example, treasury records. They can vary immensely in terms of what is included within them. The treasury record series T70 is the records of the Royal African Company, which was founded in 1660 by Charles II. According to the charter granted, the company had the whole, entire and only trade for buying and selling, bartering and exchanging of, for or with any Negroes, slaves, goods, wares, merchandise whatsoever in Africa. The company had the monopoly over trade with Africa, or at least claimed tax payments on it, until 1712 when it was opened to all. The company continued until over a hundred years later, when eventually in 1821 it was abolished, and after this the records moved through the Treasury to the Public Record Office, where they sit with us today. So it's such a huge company, and so much time and wealth involved, you can imagine the amount of records that it produced. Included in these records are numerous accounting books giving huge amounts of detail into the company finances, as you'd expect to find in Treasury including trading on the African coast and the Caribbean. 
but also included are a few of the day-to-day -day diaries of the key trading points owned by the company on the African coast. Um, these include the most matter-of-fact dealings with human beings, illustrating firsthand how the trade was run. <coughs> For example, the diary of Fort Commander on the Gold Coast, which is in present-day Ghana, includes lists of items bartered for where men, women and boys appear alongside elephant's teeth and iron bars as commodities. You can see it just halfway down there. You've got elephant's teeth here and just above you've got two men, two women and one boy just listed in how much they were worth. Now like Thomas Peter's petitions, although on a much smaller scale, within these diaries we can reveal snapshots of those who were enslaved telling part of their story rather than just their monetary value, as you can see here. For example, again in the Fort Commander diary from 1714, there's a short entry from the 15th of December, which states, By the ne negligence of the guard, one of the women slaves made her escape three days ago, but being catched by some of Inspector Cabas's people, had her returned again. I made the guard pay for their pains and to encourage the townspeople if such occasion should happen again. Upon this fearing they might do so again, sent him down to Cape Coast. Although there's not much information at all about this woman, the important thing to observe here is that amongst this huge series of company records that have been kept because of the business information within them, there are real people struggling against what is happening to them. Without passing notes such as this, and there's many other examples, of what was a fairly unimportant event in the lives of the overseers of the trading posts, this woman's actions would not, would not be known. As enslaved people were taken from the coast of Africa across to the Caribbean on the Middle Passage, so we can endeavour to trace their journeys. Details about individuals on these ships is again difficult but using the T-70 records, as I've mentioned, is also possible to trace an entire journey from England all the way through to the Caribbean. Now, a wonderful resource has been created um, using these records and drawing on some of the other key series relating to the transatlantic trade that we hold here. Slavevoyages.org is a free site that's been researched and developed by a group of academics over a two-year period. What it does is collate information gathered from records around the world, including a large number of those held here, and in particular T70, and allows you to search under a wide range of categories to track a voyage through the records. There's a name search as well, collating any names known of those enslaved that travelled on the ships. It may only be a single first name, but it is a name. It also provides numbers that allow us to see at a glance information about voyages that incurred uprisings during the Middle Passage between Africa and the Caribbean. I've run a search here. You can see the names of the ship down the left-hand side, the year that they were uh, moving around, and then on just next to that, they are listed as having slave insurrections. And this list goes on for miles. So using the Slave Voyage website, we can see that there was an uprising of the enslaved, which could be assumed led to at least some, if not all, of the high number of Coulet deaths during the voyage of the Sherbro in 1707. You can see at the bottom there, second one down, Sherbro, he was, they were going in 1707, and there's a high number of crew deaths, more than you'd expect to see, 18, and it's listed as a slave insurrection. 
you can also see from this the number of records in T70 that you can use to trace such a voyage. So there's five records that you don't have to go through yourself, go through all the registry systems. It's done there for you. And each of those, you'll be able to plot the voyage going from England all the way through from Sierra Leone to Barbados. So again, amongst a database of numbers, we can draw out examples of the other side of the story within official records. Compared with the volume of government and company records relating to the slave trade, the amount of information left by those enslaved really is minimal. However, by looking at the official records carefully, we can use them for a different purpose, such as this, and dig up some of the valuable histories within them. The final example I'd like to draw on in terms of slavery <coughs> is a chance search I carried out while responding to an inquiry from a member of the public asking about records of oral culture amongst enslaved people. Through a very simple search using the keywords slave and songs, I came across this notebook in HCA 30-381, which is the papers of the High Court of Admiralty. Clearly described on the catalogue, but grouped with a bundle of other seized items and written in French, it may not have received the attention it deserves. It's mixed in with intercepted mail from 1775 to 1793, belonging to a Francoise Lavenuil, an administrator on plantations in Haiti. Now, I've relied on colleagues who have much more than the ladybird French than I do to understand what's happening here. And it appears that the notebook is a, a notebook of songs and rhymes attributed to a Miss Dilla Iniol and written down by a Master Danion, presum presumably a member of literate staff, who has recorded songs sung on the plantations by those who are working, the enslaved. It's another amazing example of the diamonds we hold here, capturing an aspect of life, of everyday life, that would most likely have been lost forever were not for these few handwritten sheets. So with many thanks to my colleagues, James Cronin and Sally Holt, I'd like to just share a translation of the poem that no doubt many would claim was still true today. It's called The Echoing or Eternal Song. What pleases all women is not easy to define. You would need to penetrate their soul, but that is hard to reach. At every instance, their tastes change. One single point flattens their desires, a point which ought to unite them. I'll tell you what it is, to please, to charm and to seduce is their pleasure in the spring, but to govern and have control is their pleasure all the time. A quick aside here before I leave this topic on the use of language once more. Although the largest proportion of slave trade records fall within dedicated series that unfortunately haven't yet been catalogued in detail, we must still be aware of the importance of language here in its historical context. As you've heard me use, words are used within these records which we would not use today. However, they are historically accurate in terms of attitudes at the time, and therefore we must be aware of them in order to be able to find the information we're looking for, and most importantly, understand it in the context in which it was written. Now, this doesn't just apply to records who are hundreds of years old either. I'm about to show you an image of an advert from, from our copyright files, which is listed in TNA in 1912. You will notice the language used on the left-hand side of the paper, and also the nature of the advert itself. 
This really highlights the problems we're talking about, with, about histories and attitudes that have changed so vastly over time. They existed, and we clearly have the records to prove it, but how do we deal with this type of material now? In the world of the internet, and particularly Google, the descriptions in our online catalogue can be brought up as a search engine result with no context provided to those who are viewing it. If we could be sure that everyone viewing the language used in our catalogue was finding it through our website where we can provide context or even a disclaimer if necessary, then things might be slightly more controllable. But we can't, and it presents a real problem. One I certainly can't answer, but I thought I'd present the dilemma to you because I'm always interested to hear how others think about it and how we move forward with it. So finally, and fairly briefly, I come to an area of research that is planned to have more attention paid to it over the coming year here at TNA, which is the history of disability, both mental and physical. This is an area where truffle hunting is important if those confined to historical categories are ever to be discovered. Like LGB history, this subject matter is scattered across the records and it requires a significant amount of digging to find its real diamonds. From the building of lunatic asylums in the colonies to individual experiences of state provision for those wounded and unfit to work, the subject matter is really wide-ranging. Over the next few months, it's our plan to try and identify more of these records through the use of government registry systems such as the Ministry of Health series MH15 and assist researchers in how best to find them. Again, at the beginning, it will be a parachute approach, understanding the history of attitudes towards and provision for those with disabilities that will assist us. And secondly, initial truffle hunting through language. For example, the term lunatic I just mentioned or cripple in terms of physical disability provide us with many more results on both the catalogue and in registry systems. However, perhaps even more so than with an LGB history, these stories may often on only rely on researchers stumbling across them after a large amount of digging, and this is what we want to try and gather. So already, thanks to the ongoing cataloguing work of various of my colleagues, we are building up a list of where records appear and this is a good example. I hope you can see it. I've tried to take it at an angle. But this is an embossed map for blind people, so there's no ink on it whatsoever. It's extracted from an HO document and was created in 1839 at the Glasgow Asylum for the Blind. The director of the asylum sent two copies to the Home Office, most likely as an attempt to secure some funding. But once again, a comment made by a Home Office official on the minutes sheet is telling about some of the attitudes in the government at the time. It says, if the Treasury are not pushed, they will never give a farthing. And this question of official provision continues into the records regarding the colonies in the 19th and early 20th century. An excellent example of the use of language and awareness of social concerns at the time can be seen in correspondence between the colonial office and various different colonies in 1876. If you search for the words idiot and imbecile <coughs> in the catalogue, it brings up two interesting results, which are the two bottom ones there. These have been catalogued in enough detail so it allows us to find them, but they can also be found through relevant registers for the relevant colonies. The two results that appear here are in correspondence for Trinidad and Barbados, and they both refer to the provision for the education and care of idiots and imbeciles. 
the Barbados entry, the second one, is more detailed and refers to the Colonial Office Circular Dispatch of the 6th of May 1876, which we can use then to dig a little bit deeper. So if we look into the circular dispatches for 1876, we find the relevant initial dispatch and a list of all the colonies at the top there, they're a bit small, but there's a whole long list of colonies that it was circulated to. And this provides us with the information about what the government were concerned with. And it says, I have the honour to transmit to you the accompanying copy of a letter from the Society for Organising Charitable Relief and Repressing Mendicity. I shall be obliged by your furnishing me with any available information regarding the provision in the colony under your government for the education and care of idiots and imbeciles, as well as for the blind, deaf and dumb, if the latter should be included in the same administrative arrangements. So the hunt continues, and as we look for responses to this circular from the likes of Barbados and Trinidad, we can find them usefully collated in the registers of replies to circulars from the same year. This is a two-page spread. Using these registers here, we can quickly build up a picture of the general state of affairs in terms of mental health provision and provision for the deaf, dumb and blind in what this charitable society described as colonies who were the, where the subject is known to have received more than usual attention. Now, 10 out of these 16 colonies who have supposedly paid it more attention have replied that there is specifically no special provision or arrangements made for either group. In two cases, there is provision either for idiots and imbeciles or the blind, deaf and dumb, but not in both. And in Barbados's case, the matter has been raised but has been consistently ignored by the assembly, which is the bottom left there. From this point on, there are many directions we can go in terms of truffle hunting to dig up terms, to dig up in terms of following up individual reports sent back by the colonies, where they're indicated and if they've survived, or looking into the way different groups of people were categorised. Here, for example, what I'm talking about are questions being asked about idiots and imbeciles, but we can't be sure who would fit into that category in 1876. And they've also grouped them with the blind, deaf and dumb, which is another interesting categorization for the period. This, along with further details of individual stories, is something that I hope we'll be exploring and discovering over the coming months through a bit more truffle hunting. Now, a brief preview and a little bit of self-promotion of, of such individual examples can be found in my latest entry on the blog where I've written about May Billinghurst, who's a disabled suffragette and her experience of brutality at the hands of the police. So you can find this on our website. In August, we're also really pleased to welcome one of the members of our advisory panel, Dr. Julie Anderson, who's coming to speak about the origins of the Paralympic Games, which was founded through the rehabilitation of soldiers returning from the Second World War. And a podcast by Dr. Anderson is also on the website if you're interested. So in conclusion, I really hope I've shown a broad range of diverse histories today and whet your appetite about what can be found. As I've mentioned at the beginning, the fantastic thing about these hidden histories is that they cut across every discipline in one way or another. And I must thank the colleagues whose work I've delved into today. Short of doing myself out of a job, I hope that in the future, there will be less need for a focus of all things diverse as these hidden histories become more naturally a part of the mainstream. That's something we're really aiming for here at TNA. 
as I hope I've shown in areas of LGB history and disability history, it's a wide-ranging, often sporadic field in which to research, so we really welcome any further information that researchers using our records can provide us with. If you're researching here and you come across something interesting that isn't easy to find, please do let us know. And when available, please make use of the self-tagging option in our new discovery catalogue. These histories may, for obvious reasons, be caught in many negative areas of our records, but they are in fact spread throughout. And by encouraging as much truffle hunting as possible, we can dig up these diamonds and display them for their true worth. Thank you very much. This podcast is copyrighted to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>